I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. And you, I remember your white little face. And you were on a horsey. Yeah. Uh, you are... I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like... Rex. Cut on Tex! Tex! Welcome to this week's edition of Beers and Banter, a Mike and Colin podcast. The show where two longtime friends get together to enjoy adult beverages and talk nonsense about the stuff they love. This week we're talking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Alright now, two orders of business before we get started. One, this is a deep dive, so consider this your spoiler warning. And two, ostensibly, this is an adult show. There will occasionally be adult language fueled by adult beverages, so uh... Earmuffs for all the little Padawans out there. So how are you finding yourself today, Mike? I'm good. I'm excited. Getting uh, ready to go here. That uh, You're not drinking the beer. Where's the beer? <laughs> Got the beer. I just okay, had a sip of water. That's part of the point of this show is to talk <laughs> about the beer. I'm working on a, a Farm County Brewing Everyday Ale. It's brewed right here in Langley. I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, I actually quite enjoy it. You're not a nail guy normally. Not traditionally, so it's surprising. It reminds me of one I had in uh, New Orleans, actually, Louisiana. Nice oh, that, uh, that that boat one. That's right, the boot. The boot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. nice and smooth. I like it, but it's not uh, not cloudy. Like, <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, let's 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 move on. So uh, this week we are we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. Yep. I have I have all sorts of ideas and thoughts about this movie. Lots to say. But uh, I should probably. I think I want to start with uh, you. You've mentioned to me that you think this is your favorite Tarantino film. It is my favorite. Yeah. yeah. How come? Because that's that's a, a rather bold claim. Because um, I think it's the the easiest to watch, as opposed to like you said, Pulp Fiction is maybe his all time best movie. But you need space in between to watch it. I could watch yeah. this movie every day. Yes. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's a like a lazy Sunday kind of movie where you can just kind of fill your time. Yeah, it's yeah. visually beautiful. Uh, I think the dialogue is some of his best. Yeah. And the acting, I think, is also the best acting in any of his movies I've seen. Really? Yeah. Over think, over uh, Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I think the casting was dead on on this one. I would... Uh, the only way I would disagree in terms of the... The casting is perfect. Uh, it's immaculate for this film, actually. But uh, the, only, the only thing is, is it doesn't flesh out any background characters in the way it's like a kill bill does, but it's a different kind of movie yeah. and you need, and you need background characters in that kind of movie to do some of the lifting, right? This is a character study. That's so. right. Yeah. This movie also is a lot more, you can tell it's personal for Quentin Tarantino. Like it seems like he had more fun making this movie. Because, I think this one's been in the fire for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, it has a lot to do with like the era he grew up in Yes, and the area he grew up in. It's a, uh, they use love letter a lot. Right. 
yeah. when they talk about things, but this is, I think, the one he's been sitting on for a long time. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, throughout it, he has movies and references to stuff that he loves, right? Spaghetti westerns, old war movies, westerns, regular westerns. So I think uh, I think he's on record as saying um, the good, the bad, and the ugly is his all time favorite movie. Right. And there's even a good joke about that when they're talking about spaghetti westerns that it's by Italy's second best director of, of westerns. So, like, yes. that guy who's under Sergio Leone, whoever that guy was. Whoever that guy is. That other right. guy, That's Mario who... Bellucci or whatever, was also making spaghetti westerns. That's right. <laughs> but I don't know. How do you want to How do you want to tackle this? Plot, theme, character? Well, what do you want to talk about first? Uh, maybe let's start with with performances. Okay, because uh, that's easy. I yeah. Um, the one that always gets me is uh, is Margot Robbie. Right. I think she's just so incredible in this. I think she had. I wish she had more to do. Yeah. But I, I also think her role is obviously the most not is the most important. It is. It's the most important to the theme of the movie. Yeah. She kind of plays the epitome of the era. Like mm. she plays the sixties. Yes. She has the character that is, she's just excited. She's happy. She's the the good person in the whole movie. Yeah. Because she's not necessarily the the hero of the movie. Yeah. But, but she's the role model of the movie. I guess. She's Paul Revere and not Jim Morrison. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and also, it's it just kind of there's a real meta textuality to this film, and this gets into the theory that I've I've really wanted to discuss with you because. Some of the stuff I've read about this film is that uh, they take too many narrative missteps, things that don't really service the plot, and I, I think we're kind of bogged down in this this type of criticism where the, the only things that are important in a movie are the, the quote-unquote things that happen. But I think for that reason, the scene where she goes to watch a movie of herself is maybe the most important film in this whole or moment in this whole movie. Yeah. Because it's, to me, this is my theory, is that it's supposed to be a self-insert for Quentin Tarantino and how he feels when he goes to watch a movie that he made and watching other people enjoy it. That's exactly right. Yeah, he actually, he is on record of saying that he does that, right? He goes and sits and watches people. Well, that people, I didn't know. Watching people in the theater react to his movies. He loves that. He makes films and, and you know, for people to watch in the theater. And enjoy. Yeah. And, and react to. And that comes to the kind of part of what, what I really loved about this movie that a lot of people don't really understand about it they don't get is that the main idea of this movie the underlying thing is the feeling you have throughout it. yes the experience of making films and watching films yeah and the kind of what you might call this magic of cinema we'll say or something like that right and yeah because you can tell how when she's watching the movie how much she's enjoying it how into it she is how proud she is and her memory is of her is training with Bruce Lee, yeah. like the good memories that she has that are associated with making this movie. And rightfully, she's like, I, I made this amazing thing that people love, right? Like, yeah. and and at this stage in Quentin Tarantino's career, he's on record as saying is his ninth uh, film of ten of ten, yeah. You know, so he's only got one more. So this is his movie about movies, yeah, basically. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And his ideal movies, not just movie about movies, but like his ideal, yeah. his, his romance of them. Mm. Um, it's been talked about before as being like a fairy tale, hence the, the title Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Obviously, that's obviously a reference as well, but like it's supposed to be that fairy tale feeling. And that's why it plays around with reality. And some people have a problem with that, right? 
Yeah, that is uh, my other my other main contention because again, this comes back to a metatextuality issue. You know, you're like, oh well, th- did this really happen? The whole idea is this is a true crime, and he's taken it and subverted the idea. Yeah. In a movie, if this was not real life, maybe it would have ended like this. You wouldn't have gotten the ending you wanted, but the ending you needed as a moviegoer. Exactly. You know, it ends how a movie would end. Yeah. Not how real life ends. And to him, that's exactly what this is. It's not real life. This is a movie. Yeah. And that's the point throughout the whole movie. If you pay close attention, I mean, he even puts in glitches on purpose. Editing glitches that they used to have in those old movies on purpose to prove a point. Like, this is a movie, so don't expect the ending. But that's part of the genius of this movie is that he sets up the tension throughout the movie that you expect the reality ending. Yes. And then... Spoiler, he flips it on you, right? Exactly. When we went to, to see this, I'm like, well, I'm I'm intimate with this story. I, I know exactly what happened in real life. All the details are there. And of course, it being Tarantino, they're immaculate. They're yep. all correct. It's all going to unfold this way. And then it doesn't. You know, you watch it the first time as a tragedy and subsequent viewings are a comedy. Yeah. Because you're like, well, this whole, it was this catharsis, this release the first time. And the word that, even the first time we watched it together, the word that kept coming into my mind was satisfying. Like, this is one of the most satisfying movies I've seen in a while. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Oh, for absolutely. For that exact reason. That, and I think that's why it's my favorite movie, because, like, I can watch it over and over. Yeah. Endlessly quotable. You know, like, yeah. plays with so many ideas I love in film. It, like you said, it's just visually... And it's beautiful to watch. Beautiful to look yeah. at. And, I mean, a huge chunk of the budget went to that as well, right? That was the whole thing. Transforming Hollywood Boulevard, Boulevard to look like 1968 cost a ton of money. Well, I wonder I wonder how much even in replicating all that old neon in that one, I think, that minute-long transition where they turn all the lights on, how much did that cost? Yeah. You know, that was probably... This, this seems like the kind of movie where Pitt and uh, DiCaprio probably worked for Peanuts. Just to make, you know, not peanuts, but well, below their, <laughs> let, below, let's say below what their normal pay grade will say. DiCaprio cut his salary in half. There you go. You know, yeah. we don't need to talk about the actual money, but it's half of what he normally takes. That's a lot for when you consider what he thinks of the movie, right? That he's willing to do that. And this is a guy who picks his projects. Exactly. You know, he's kind of like got that Meryl Streep status. If he wants to make a movie, he's making that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that to me, that's kind of his standing, right? Like, you're like, oh, if he's attached to your film, that film is getting made and he is in it. Yeah. You know, that doesn't go through that other Hollywood development hell bullshit that a lot of our, maybe we'll get this guy and maybe we'll get that guy or whatever yeah. in pre production or whatever, right? But no, if Leo wants to do your movie, it's getting made. You're, you're, yeah. <laughs> it's probably going to get made. And it's it, probably going to be good. <laughs> yeah. As, as long as you, yeah. And that's the other thing. Actually, let's talk about his performance while we're on talking about Leo then. Okay. I, I've This, to me, might be his best work that I've seen him in. I, I fully agree. And, and, I mean, he's done a lot of good stuff. So. But do you know why? Because he is a 10 out of 10 actor who's playing a 6 out of 10 actor mm-hmm. trying to ring out 8 out of 10 performances. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. It's weird because it we have somebody who's probably our one of our very best working actors acting as an actor who isn't that good. Who's this kind of like a TV actor who, or a bullshit, low-budget, spaghetti western, Bond rip-off actor, who's trying to wring out these good performances out of himself, which is, it's, it's, it's some weird layering. Yeah. You know? It, it's a lot of layering, and, you know, that's kind of Leo's thing. So, he's actually playing him as kind of bipolar, too. 
Yeah. Which is why he has those fits and upset, and he's self-doubting himself. He's at the point of his career where he doesn't, you know, every, anytime anything negative is said, it affects him immensely. Oh, he's yeah. He's looking for that confidence, right? So that's why, like, if you notice in the scene with um, Al Pacino... Yep. They're talking about his career, and when he starts saying that your career is going downhill, basically, to convince him to do the Westerns, he starts stuttering and stammering and he having a hard stammers. time. He stammers. I've yeah. noticed that, too. Yeah. And anytime he in the movie he's not confident, he stammers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you can, like, if he's unsure of himself, or even when he's braiding himself, he's all, you know, like, it's a stutter almost. Yeah. And he's longer winded. He draws out his conversation. When he's confident, he's quick and fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's the difference between the character and reality. Yeah. The real, you know, like Rick Dalton and, you know, like, or and J.K. Hill, we'll yeah. say. You know, like this level of human being and character, right? And I actually, I think that's also one of the great scenes of this movie is that, is that scene with Pacino because you can, you can see how he comes into that, mo- that meeting confident and he's totally deflated by the end. Yeah. And it comes in stages. Because the wave of reality hits him. It's it he's like he's exactly right. You know, like if I don't if I don't get this turned around in my career, that's it for me. I'm going back to Alabama or wherever he said he was from, right? Like that's it. And but that is that is the reality of the world he was working in. We we kind of have this picture in our mind of this guy is being a rich, affluent actor who had a TV show for like six years, has made a bunch of movies, and but he's just a guy with a you know, like yes, he has a a nice Cadillac, but like just a kind of an average home. Well, his career is fading. He has, yeah. he has a home in Hollywood. He has a Cadillac. Like he, he's done well for himself. He has movies. He he's done a TV show. And most people yeah. would look at it like, yeah, he's done well, but he's a fifties actor in the sixties. And he feels like he's being pushed out. Like he's useless. His, his era is over. His type of movies are done. They don't make those anymore. And it's not like he's got any other skills. And he has nothing else. Yeah. And, and he's feeling down about it. Right. And, and well, I mean the, the metaphor with easy breezy. Of course. Of gets course. to him because it's like that. That's exactly how he feels. And that actually is the point where the little girl tells her how great his acting is. Yeah. It's his biggest moment in the whole movie. I, that is, my, I think, my favorite scene in the whole movie. Because it's, it's, it's so funny how much her opinion means to him. It's everything. It's absolutely it's everything. absolutely to have, everything. Well, he also respects her the way she's acting. He, does. he realizes she's a good actress. He's like, no, she is good. Actor, and correction. she takes this shit that I kind of mail in super seriously. Exactly. It motivates him. It does motivate him. He's like, I need to elevate my performance to be on the level of this eight-year-old girl. Yeah. And that's why his compliment, it's played for humor, but the sincerity of it and the way he takes it is also very sweet. Yeah. Because you can see he's like, mm, fuck yeah, right? Like, he's, he's like, I'm getting that swagger back, right? Like, yep. it's, it's, it, I, I, I love that moment in the movie. Yeah. That, to me, was also the best acting in the whole movie, which is saying something. Because it's meant to be... Sexy Hamlet or whatever. Evil Hamlet. <laughs> Sexy evil Hamlet. Yeah. Which, what well, does that even mean? <laughs> you know what's funny is that the the director... Sam Wanamaker or whatever. Was he based on a real guy? Based on Quentin Tarantino. Really? That's how, that's how actors and people on set have actually talked about Quentin Tarantino, is that 
he'll come in and he'll say outrageous things, almost cartoonish. Yeah. Like, you know how he's describing the, the hippie jacket and, like, that's how Quentin Tarantino is. Oh, and, okay. And he's super quick to praise when, when he knows what he wants. And when an actor does the job, he's super quick to praise and is like, that's exactly what I want. And, like, so when you Nailed watch, it. Not watch Kubrick, the movie. We're not doing this 80 fucking times. We're exactly. done. That's yeah. how Quentin Tarantino oh, is. Oh, okay. So it's funny because I don't know if he did it intentionally as, as like, a, a parody self. of himself. Yeah, I don't know. But, like, that's how everybody describes him. And mm. so when I've watched it, the third or fourth time I noticed and I'm like it's kind of funny because I think there's obviously some sort of I never there. I never put that together because this movie has so many references I assumed it was based on someone but I didn't know it was based on him yeah the attention to detail and the level of craft I assume like the hair girl is based on someone probably yeah. you know I just gotta put out this disclaimer we've got the movie on in the background I'm going to shift gears for a sec, just a sec, because I want to come back to this later. But why do you think they use this shot so much? The behind the seat camera shot? Because that's one thing I definitely did want to talk to you about. Well, Whenever they're in cars, there's the behind the seat, two people driving. That happens often in the film, a few times. Yeah. That scene. Yeah. Do you know why? Uh, Well, I think two things. One is, I mean, visually it's nice. You see all the surrounding. Like, he wanted Mm. to make it look like the 60s era, so you can actually see the neon lights and everything. But I, I think... To see, and you kind of see it all. It also puts you yeah. in, yeah, and it also puts you into the movie. Yeah, oh, okay. Okay, so just pure aesthetics, just visually? Yeah. Okay, I didn't, because I always assume something is a reference. And that, that seems like the kind of show that, or a shot they would use often in the 60s. Possibly. I, I haven't looked into that, but. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. Uh, I mean, knowing like, Tarantino, I'm sure he's seen it before. It probably did happen in the 60s. Yeah. But I think he uses it for certain reasons. His camera angles are usually used for certain reasons. Because you'd never see that shot in a movie now. No, that doesn't happen. Exactly. That shot doesn't happen. No, exactly. But I don't know if it's a reference or if that's a Tarantino. Like, he he likes that. Yeah. Because it puts you in the movie, like I said, and it shows your whole surrounding. Shooting somebody from outside in a car, all you're seeing is people sitting in a car. That's yeah. boring. Yeah. That's boring, right? You don't see it. You don't see everything. You don't see them playing with the radio. Like Visually, it reminds me a lot of uh, Kill Bill Part 2 mm-hmm. when... Uh, Uma Thurman is driving her car towards the camera and it's directly focused on her. Yeah. You know, like breaking the fourth wall, interacting with the audience, talking to you. you Putting know, like, you in the movie again. Yeah, where yeah. You're, it really puts you in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I I think you're right. I think it's it's all meant to be part of the experience. Yeah. Well, his, his camera angles are very intentional. Like some directors just kind of point and shoot. Does he do a lot of his own cinematography stuff? I imagine he does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, physically, I don't know if he does it, but he plans. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very hands-on when it comes to stuff like that. And I don't know this either, but I imagine he has a kind of a team he works with. Yeah, he has a regular of, team for Especially for the cinematography the stuff, because yes. I'm sure he takes the angles of the shot and all that very seriously. Like, uh, one of the scenes that really blew me away in this movie in terms of the cinematography is uh, when Tex is riding back on the horse and all the sweeping angles are just... Yep. It's a, it's a, a level of craftsmanship I don't think you appreciate when watching the movie, but that that camera tracking is incredible. Yeah, it's just incredible the way it follows the horse, goes through the town, you know, like the whole ride. I'm like, I don't I don't even want to know what kind of apparatus they had to rig up yeah. to get that kind of because it's a continuous shot. Yeah, you that's know? a huge crane. It's a <laughs> that's huge, what it is. yeah, a huge ass, <laughs> a huge ass fucking crane. That's right. Yeah, because it goes, it is a long shot. Yeah. A long unbroken shot, maybe twenty seconds. It's just, just oh, yeah, love it. And speaking of how good things look visually in this movie, 
Doesn't Damian Lewis just look like almost exactly like yes. Steve McQueen? Yes, and acts like him. He did a dang, acts like, like a perfect job. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, that's that's Steve McQueen. I never had a chance. Never had a chance. I'm like that is you're the cute, coolest human being alive, and you never had a chance. Because <laughs> he wasn't a nerd. <laughs> It's true. He wasn't a short brunette nerd. Everyone has their limitations. Yeah, right? yeah. Even even Steve McQueen, even though I refuse to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I I also love the use of dates because they're useless. I uh, I actually I don't agree. I don't think they're useless. I I mean the way that people think they're there for is useless. Yeah. Oh well, once the once the reveal happens, yeah. Like I said, this movie is is different from the it, first time you watch it and the second time you watch yes, it. Yes, exactly. So they're set. They're there. What I'm what I'm trying to say is they're there for a very specific reason, and it's to put that suspense of what's going to happen in your mind. It's a reminder of the impending doom coming. It's looming over your head because yeah. that gut feeling. I felt it throughout the whole movie, and things like that would remind me, like, oh yeah, we're getting close. Like yeah. they're they're setting it up for a reason. But if you took them out of the movie for the second viewing, you don't need them. Like, it doesn't do no. anything because you no. know the ending now, right? No. no. So, uh, I love that he put things like that in, and especially comes into fruition later, like, when they're playing out the scene and he's doing the time, yeah. like, at 11 o'clock, at 11.05, at around midnight this happened, and he's doing it yep. the night of, and you're like, it's it's ticking down in your brain, and you're... The gears it, are working. It's getting worse and worse. You feel it. You feel it. You're... you're you know, you're just waiting for it to the negative to happen. Yeah, well, it's it's the same reason when I think um, Rick and Cliff first drive back that the uh, the signpost for Cielo Drive is heavily prominent in the yeah, shot. Yeah, it lingers. Yeah, same like, reason. Yeah, there's you'd think there's no reason for that, but then you're putting two and two together in your That's head. Right. The average moviegoer might not know that kind of detail about the tape murders, yeah. and so they're like, um, and, but those that do, they're like, yeah, okay. You know, this is yeah. this is going to go sideways. This is going to go south. And then they introduce other elements. You know, like one thing that really was a huge disjunct for me the first time I watched this movie is how little Charles Manson is. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, that was part of this. It got cut out. He had a lot more scenes. Yeah. But they got cut out because the original cut was four and a half hours. So they had to cut something. They got it down to 340. And they don't need it. And they don't need it. They exactly. Need it. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that are. They feel like he should have been the one punished in the movie if it is truly a movie, not the people. But that's traced too far from reality, I think, for Quentin. Well, he wasn't there for those murders. He wasn't there. If you put him there, then it's too... Then it's obvious that it's not going to go the way you want, either. Yeah. Like... I don't know how much you know about the original story. It was two nights. Yeah. Like, the tape murders happened one night, and then a couple other the next night. That's right. Because Charles Manson was like, uh, you botched that job the first time. It wasn't terrible enough or whatever right yeah. like we need to do more and that's it's uh i don't know this is that's the other real remarkable thing about this movie is that quentin was really able to wrestle this kind of incredible fable out of something just so terrible yeah well i think he played on a lot of people's i mean not with the the ending obviously but yeah people's memories of things are obviously askew from what reality happened and I think Which he, is a, he played on that a lot. Maybe the major theme of this movie. Yeah. And that's part of it is that it's it's fiction. It's a movie yeah. made from things. And he cobbled things from people's fables and, and memories. Like such as the Bruce Lee thing. Which he gets a lot of criticism for, right? No, I was just about to mention this. It's perfect that you brought it up. Because both, uh, both Cliff and Rick have great scenes about your selective memory. Which 
it, it, you're like, is the is this a questionable narrator? How much can I believe what actually happened? That's right. You know, like Cliff in his mind, his retelling of the Bruce Lee fight, did it happen that way? Because did it happen at all? We don't know, right? Yeah. Like he threw Bruce Lee into a car and it smashed. Like, do you remember those Hot Wheels when you you smash them and the door would flip? Yeah, it looked like that. Yeah, it was caved in. It was caved in. And it he was, just hopped up like that. It was that yeah. was probably only the only moment of ridiculous. Apart from the ending, but that was actually believable murder. Well, yeah, it was a little ridiculous. It was a little ridiculous, but... On purpose. On purpose. But uh, that was the only moment in this movie where, like, physically, I don't understand it. Yeah. And it kind of brings you out of yourself, and you're like, okay, well, to what, to what degree did this actually happen or not? Is it just a selective memory? But the movie does a great job of setting Cliff up the whole way about to be this incredibly tough motherfucker. That's what it comes down to, is that fight was meant to see, like, he can fight Bruce Lee. Everybody knows Bruce Lee is a tough guy. The fact that he could go one-on-one with him yeah. shows that the ending isn't unfeasible. No. That's what it comes down to. Yes. That's what that whole scene is about. It, it lays that it, those seeds out. Because big deal when he beats up. The skaggy Some hippie ass kid. hippie kid. Yeah. Like who get like that is with jack teeth, that's not that's not a real victory, you no. know, like but to go toe to toe with Bruce Lee and have it be legit and everyone's like this this yeah. dude is a bad motherfucker, this is legit, then yeah, that means something, right? Yeah, exactly. And and to be fair, in the original script he was supposed to take a cheap shot and beat like knock Bruce Lee down for the second time. Oh, okay. So like win the, the bet or whatever. The stunt coordinator and I can't remember who else it was, the editor. So somebody yeah. convinced him that he could they could show the fight one-on-one and prove how tough Cliff is without him actually beating Bruce Lee because they didn't want to disparage Bruce Lee that much. Because he's used in a way. That's the thing. Like People think, oh, he's making fun of Bruce Lee and stuff, and he's not. He's just making a character of him to prove a point. That's kind of the theme of this movie. Like, a bit, is memory. Yeah. You know, like, Cliff scene. Also, uh... Leonardo DiCaprio was almost in The Great Escape. Yeah, they edited him in. And it, it, you don't know what the actual outcome was. It Was he even close? Yeah, Does he says he wasn't really close. He claimed he wasn't really close. Yeah. How much is that his posturing? Did he actually even film that scene? Is he remembering filming that scene? Did that, yeah. Does it exist? You don't know. Well, the fact that they flash back to it, and it could be made up, just proves that all the other flashbacks... Yeah, have no validation. You don't know. No, you don't. It's know. all made up. It's a movie. It's yeah. It's, it's made. A movie. It's, the flashbacks are made to give you a perception of the character. That's what it comes down to. It's the same same thing with Brad Pitt's character killing his wife. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I was just going to talk about that. How I love that in the flashback to the Green Hornet fight, he has a flashback about him and his wife on his boat. There's a flashback in a flashback. Inception. Yeah. Inception. <laughs> he had a flashback in a flashback. His flashback was flashing back. Yeah. Oh, too much acid. He didn't even have that acid dip cigarette yet. And, and the thing is, no one's <laughs> flashing back. They're just showing you that to show character. Because it's not even him talking about it. It's the stunt coordinator and uh, Dalton talking about it. Yeah. How would they flash back? They didn't know what happened. He's not thinking about it out in the golf cart. No. But no. they show it to show characters. I don't know. People sometimes view this movie as reality. Like it's a retelling. And that's not what it is no. at all. They're, he's just taking real events as a basis well we we talk about this often is that uh i think generally we don't ascribe enough to all the other elements that go into a movie and usually it's just the shit that happens that people focus on Mm -hmm. the actual course of narrative events yeah and that's only like 
part of the story when it comes to a filmmaker like Tarantino or, or any of our great auteurs. Very small. I mean, this film came out because he started it as a novel about an actor. I wrote that down in my notes. <laughs> that I guarantee that there is a novel behind this somewhere. He, he I did. didn't know that. He did. He started it as a novel between um, an actor and yeah. his stuntman because he thought that was an amazing kind of like bromance that was an odd but kind of awesome thing to have. And he started writing it as a novel. And as he did it, it was developing. He realized it would make a better movie. And he kept writing it as a novel, insisting he wanted to write a novel. And oh, my realized God. I just that, had a theory that that was the case. And it turns out to be true. I love it. Yeah, I love he it. realized like, that it had to be a movie. movie. He's like, well, I'm not a novelist. I'm a movie maker. And I'm yeah. going to make this movie. Yeah. Also, isn't uh, don't they have the sweetest friendship of all time? It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I... I, I um, Kurt Russell sums it up best when he's narrating and he says, like, when they're coming back from Italy and he says, what do you do when an era is ending between a man who is more than a brother but a little less, a little than, a less than a wife? And that's exactly what he is. And that's exactly it. And you're like, and all you can do when you come to the end of that road is just get a good drunk get on it. Get a good and, drunk and, on it. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I'm like, that's, that's, that's really it. And then I love that really brief scene of them in the Mexican restaurant drunk. And they're just bullshitting about movies. About movies. Yeah. Which, if you and me ever have that time, heaven forbid, I guarantee that's what we would do. Exactly. We would probably be having a conversation just like this. Yeah, getting drunk as shit, having a conversation about, this is something. The most underrated director. Yeah, yeah. For action movies. And that's why I love the scene when we're watching his FBI clip together, because I'm like... I would watch that show if Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio just watched movies and their own movies and commented on them. I'd watch that show. That's my actual favorite scene in the movie. Really? And it's a throwaway thing, really. Yeah. But it does show their relationship. But like, I I love it. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. That guy was an asshole. That guy was that guy was <laughs> no, an asshole. It's so good. <laughs> I would goes, wa- I would watch that show too. He goes, that was a good leap, smooth good, leap, smooth leap. Thanks. And, and, and he's like, because well, he knows how good Cliff is. That's a sincere compliment. That's true. Yeah, because he's, he's the stuntman. He's the stuntman. He's like, hey, you know, or or when he says, hey, you're Rick fucking Dalton. You know, yeah. that's that's you know, he says it to pick up his friend, right? Like that came no from there. Brad Pitt's own experience. Did you know that he ad libbed that line? Quentin Tarantino was known to have his script set. Like, he writes dialogue amazing, so he doesn't want people to... But, you know, yeah, I, these I, great I, actors come up with lines that are good. That one was his own. He said that Brad Pitt's, like, the scene came from it. He's like, in my... It was the 90s. He's like, and I was feeling down, and a guy told me, he's like, you're Brad fucking Pitt. Like, I would love to be Brad yeah, fucking I'm Pitt. Yeah, I might do. Get Don't over Don't forget it. that you're still Brad Pitt. Like, Not whatever's pr- troubling you... I like Brad Pitt in generally a lot of movies. Like, I think he's a pretty good actor. He's a better actor when he's not the main character. I agree. Oddly enough, when he's when he's the secondary character, which he is in this, I think this might be one of his best performances. Though, how likable is he? And he's a guy that possibly murdered and got away with his wife, which they tell they say it multiple times, multiple times. And you, you, you can't, and you, him. but you forgive it. You forgive it, and he, that's important in the climax because yeah. he is the good guy, the quote unquote the, good the guy. The good guy, yeah, exactly. He's the guy you're cheering for. You cheer for him, even he though wins. he straight up murders people <laughs> in a brutal way. Yeah. In an aggressive way. In a very aggressive way. Yeah. And you know me, I'm sensitive. It's hard for me to watch that stuff. But, uh, exactly. You know, but uh, I, I got through it. I got through it. But how charming do you have to be, is all I'm saying, for oh, somebody to be yeah. like, that guy murdered people, and you're like, I still like him. They do a good job of setting that up in the flashback, too. Yes. You know, like, because you're like, 
Oh my god, is his wife a shrew? That's true. You're like, <laughs> I might murder her in that situation too. Yeah, like, <laughs> Fair. he's like, I'm already out at sea. That's true. I got this harpoon in my hand. Yeah. Like, but he's just such a, like, that's what I mean. Like, he's just such a good guy in it. Like, he's nice. Like, he, he's, honestly, he's like the ultimate cool. Like, he's a cool, laid back guy. He's a stuntman, war hero. He's super, like, a great friend. He's, like, super yeah. nice to people. These are losers you're rooting for. Yeah. You know, same 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 with Rick Dalton. Yeah. Right? Like you're oh, rooting yeah. for same him thing. too. Yeah, Rick Dalton. You're 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 You feel for bad that. for Rick Dalton more than anything though. You feel that yeah that when he has the doubts about himself, uh, you feel that. Like you feel bad for him. You you root for him to do you want him to meet Roman Polanski to get that movie yes. role, right? Which I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, probably would never even happen, even if no. they met. No, he's not the type of actor that's in a Roman Polanski movie. No, like right? uh, even when we first watched this, I'm like, I think he was just coming off Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, that much is true. Is that uh, he was red hot on fire, mm-hmm. you know, like and and probably was doing things like going to parties at the Playboy Mansion and whatever else at the time, right? Yeah. So, yeah, well the. Okay, so this is something that I thought of when I watched the movie last, was the characters represent different eras, right? Mm. So, like, Rick Dalton and, and Brad Pitt kind of represent the 50s, like, they're the old, yeah. the old style they're actor, the old, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of pushed by. out in the 60s yeah. here. You've got Roman Polanski and uh, Tate as the 60s, and, like, especially her being the kind of, like, innocent, even though she's not innocent the happy and free-flowing 60s, and then you've got the Manson family representing the 70s, killing the 60s. Yeah. Killing that old version. Like, uh, Rick Dalton's just trying to stay relevant. He's old school, 50s, trying to find his way in the 60s, and the Mansons are coming along to end the 60s. And that's why Margot Robbie is so important in the film, is because she represents the actual era. Now that you've just said this... free, free... thinking free-flowing just happy era yeah coming to an end i've i've never put this two and two together in my head until just now but i think that's exactly it it's the the we'll call it the end of the age of innocence mm-hmm. the end of the 60s yeah. just like altamont was for rock and roll yeah it was it was kind of like the flower child era the hippie era whatever that's done yeah we're going forward with the new cynicism the 70s are rolling over yeah. i mean how old was quentin tarantino probably at the time maybe 20 years old Maybe At that younger? time? No, he's younger than that. I think younger? he was he was just a young kid when this stuff actually happened. Okay. But it's just like, you know, his formative years yeah. for movies so and stuff. So this would weigh it's important to him. Yes, very important. Oh, this is heavily important for him. Yeah. This was this was the exact era. And and not only that, the movies he loved were produced in the sixties, right? He like I said, he loves those spaghetti westerns. So the late sixties, early seventies. He loves those old World War II movies, yeah. those old westerns, they didn't make those in the 70s anymore. Like, they were no. petering out. They were no. they were gone. And and he references them all the time. That's actually one thing I do love in the movie as well. He puts in all those things he loves here and there for you to see without even knowing it. So, like, on the bus ad, for example, is Combat, which is a World War II TV show yeah. that he watched. It was one of his favorite TV shows. It's just on a bus ad. When Cliff is in his trailer at home, when he's at home, he's got comics one of them is Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, and one of them is a Western comic. I don't remember the name, but okay, it's reference. It's supposed to be referencing the two movies they just talked about: the Fourteen Fists of McCluskey, which is the World War II movie, yeah. and Tanner, which is the the Western. Right? Yeah, His two okay. biggest movies. Yeah, those they're supposed to mirror the comics. I, I mean, in Fourteen Fists of McCluskey, he has an eye. Hence patch. the eye patch. Exactly. Like, oh, okay. I. It, 
He I never knew that he was supposed to be Sergeant Fury. Yeah. He oh, references okay. all but that. That yeah. makes perfect sense yeah. all of a sudden. He references all the things but that Sergeant he loved Fury as a kid. would burn Nazis up with a flamethrower. With an awesome one-liner. Yeah. Yeah, with an awesome one-liner. That's yeah. definitely a, a Nick Fury move. I never... Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. And those are the type of movies they made then, right? I mean, it's really an ode to his childhood. That's the thing he remembers. All the murals they show... Like the, the big murals on the walls, the paintings of yeah. ads for movies and stuff. That was around back in the 60s. That was a thing in Hollywood. And now it's gone, right? And those are the things he remembers and loves. So he's throwing them in the movie. That's when I said that I feel like he enjoyed making this movie the most is that he put things in he loves. Like those clips of old movies, he got to write clips of of movies from the 60s, right? Like clips from Westerns, clips from... And he loved it so much, he actually wrote full five episodes of Bounty Law. He's written them, he wants to make them someday. But that means he doesn't want to recast it, so I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio making Bounty Law? Probably not going to happen. No, they're going to have to use that de-aging... But think about it, he's <laughs> making, he's making five-minute clips for a movie, and he took the time to write five full episodes of a show because he loved it so much. He loved how it came out, these, that it looks are, like a are, 50s Western. Oh my god, those are, that's a, such a Quentin Tarantino movie. I know. Because in theory, it serves no purpose. No purpose. In theory, it serves no Except purpose. that it serves a purpose for him, because he loves it. Yeah. And it's these are all elements that exist in your mind. Yeah. How you interact with the movie or whatever. Like The two words that really... One was satisfying, and the other was experience. How experiential this movie is. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's where the passion really is. Yeah. It comes through for him. It shines through. And it, it makes me wonder what his last movie is supposed to be. This is the thing that I was contemplating, too, is he said 10 movies and he's pretty adamant on it. I don't know if it will actually be 10 movies. It would almost be a shame because I don't think he's out of stories. He probably feels like he he feels because he feels like most directors and writers they only have 10 solid stories he doesn't want to make garbage yeah that's what it comes down to so he's putting that pressure on himself he doesn't want to peter out he wants to make his standard of movies that being said you hear him all the time talking about different ideas and stuff he as an artist he has these ideas they've got to come to fruition eventually like this was designed as a novel this wasn't designed to be one of his 10 movies but he realized it had to be so why can't that happen in 20 years after he's made 10 movies? Why wouldn't he have those ideas? It's going to, like, I feel like it can't be just 10 movies. Well, yeah. like How even... can you limit yourself to 10, especially now that he's at 9? How can you be like, I only have one left? You're never going to make that 10th no. because you're never going to feel something's good enough. No, and especially for a perfectionist. Yeah. Like, even when I was watching this, because Maya Hawk is in it, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how cool would it be if he made Kill Bill 3... With, you know, like, the bride and her daughter, and Maya Hawk plays her daughter. It would be That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, if, if Uma and her real daughter got... But then I'm like, but he might be like, why would I go back to Kill Bill? Because yeah. that's going back to the well. I, Even I, though yeah. that's such a rich world. Yeah. You know, you I, could definitely do another movie in that, in that universe. I feel whatever. like he might get away with it by doing things like side project TV shows and novels and stuff. I think he might do things like that to get those sort of things out of his system. Like, let's put it this way. He wrote but five episodes. he's never episodes. Really done anything like that before for public consumption. But if he only wants to make ten movies, I mean, he wrote five episodes of Bounty Law. He could have made that a movie if he wanted to. Yes. He could have made a Bounty Law movie that was like Kill Bill, but an old Western, right? People would watch it. Would you oh, watch yeah. it? Yeah, I would. I would watch it. But... Is yeah. it going to be up to his standard of his 10 movies? No. So he won't make it. 
But he wrote it as TV episodes, and for him, that's good enough. And hopefully one day he said he wants to make it. Like, as he's not like, oh, well, I have it. But he's like, he wants to pursue it. Yeah. But convincing, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio to make a cheesy Western TV show is... That's not the best use of his time. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> or no. Quentin's time, really. But I no, just say... but... I just feel like... And it's the same reason why, like, he really was passionate about making this Star Trek movie. And it keeps getting pushed aside. Well, he's not going to make that his last movie. No. If he can only make 10, I, I there's no way he makes a Star Trek movie, but it keeps coming up. I don't know if the uh, rated R Star Trek movie is ever going to happen. What? Or if it ever should, or if, for well, that matter. But, yeah, I mean, that, but this <laughs> is the thing. like The reality of the... Okay, I don't want to get sidetracked, but the reality yeah. of the Star Trek world is that it, it fits because it's supposed to be the new Western. Yeah. Space yeah, is the, true. the space movie the is frontier. the new Western. It's the, it's new the Western. final frontier. It's the new West. Those elements of, of freedom and going against the unknown, that's why the Western moved to space. Now, this is a character, the, uh, the little girl character, is one who's actually, in my opinion of, has changed on subsequent viewings. Uh, every time I watch this movie, I like her more. No, she's amazing. She's amazing. And uh, the editor said, like, when they cut... You know, over an hour of footage, a lot of it was her stuff. Really? And he was heartbroken. But it wasn't essential to the story because she's not a central character. Yeah. But the, her scenes are so good. That's why I said I need to buy the Blu-ray and watch the deleted scenes because a lot of great scenes are going to be in there. And a lot of it was hers. Oh, I believe it. Uh, I the, believe the it The scenes sure. with her and Leo, there's way more. They said they had to cut a ton of it out and it broke their heart. But, I mean, they four and a half hours. They have instant amazing chemistry. Yeah. And the thing, coming back to this, I love how much he respects her opinion. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it, it's, it's important. It's an eight-year-old kid. I mean, an eight-year-old kid. Her quote is, that is the best acting I've ever seen. Like, she's only eight, but he takes it so seriously and to heart. And what acting has she done? Yeah, exactly. But she's just such a serious individual. Yeah. He's like, wow, she is approaching this craft in a way that I never did. Yeah. You know, like, she's like she gives a shit about acting, like... And he's like, I was on Bounty Law. <laughs> <laughs> well, she gives him that confidence. I love mm. that. That she's like, you can yeah. like, you can do this. Like, their scene is amazing together. Yeah. And he didn't have that confidence before. Like, that's why he was screwing up his lines and stuttering at himself in his trailer. I, can't, I feel like I've been saying this a lot, but that is also another one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie, is the one where he's messing up his lines with Timi Timothy Oliphant. It's a really good line. It isn't necessarily because of the acting in that scene, which is actually, which is very good. Yeah. But uh, because of the interplay between him and uh, the off the off camera cast. Yeah. Uh, because you never see them. No, you just hear him yelling. That, and I think that was a stylistic choice on purpose. Yep. That you, you know, there wasn't a reveal of the director or or the script supervisor or whoever, right? Who is like this? No, nope, that's the line. Giving them the line. You're always still in the scene. You're watching through the camera lens. Yes, you're watching That's what through it the, is. Yeah, you're watching through the camera lens. You're watching lens. as if the director was filming them, which yes. I love. Yeah. Which is, again, this, I, I feel like I've been saying this a lot too, but it's another, it's a layering. I, I kind of feel like I, I can't remember the last time, this and a few other movies, so much thought and craftsmanship went into a movie. That's yes. the other like word that keeps coming up for me is craftsmanship. Like, I, I don't think there are any errors in this film. Not, I mean, the ones that are on purpose. Except for the ones that are on purpose. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it's just meticulous. Absolutely meticulous. And again, it's just beautiful to watch. Like, mm. I, I can put it on visually. It's it's a great movie. Yeah. We don't even have the sound on right now, and I, I can't take my eyes off the screen, right? 
Speaking of sound, we haven't touched on this at all, but I mean, it's, you could generally come to expect it with Tarantino films, but the the music is also. All right, I'm glad you brought this up because yeah. the music is obviously on point. Like, for example, when Cliff first sees the, um, I don't know her name, the, the the girl, the Manson girl. Yeah. Mrs. Robinson's playing. Yes. Right. Which yes. alludes to obviously his attraction, but he knows she's underage. Yeah. Which plays out later. Um, a but, little bit of reversal there between the real Mrs. Robinson, which is yeah, kind of funny. Because, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But like, that's the idea, right? It gives you that idea. But what I love about this movie, which I didn't notice the first time watching it either, or even really the second, probably the third or fourth, is his use of commercials. There's more oh, commercials yeah. in this movie than there are music, which for Quentin Tarantino is odd because he uses music a lot. There's way more commercials. Lots of cuts to TV. Lots. Yeah. TV, radio ads. Yeah. It's huge. And again, it puts you in the era. Yeah. Well, uh, even the comment towards the end of uh, Wojciech, the, the Polish guy staying with the, at uh, the Tates, is uh, he's like, wow, American TV is so much better than Polish TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that is uh, not a stretch. Yeah. Uh, that seems pretty easy to believe. Yeah. I also like in that scene when he, the guy points out when the, on the TVs, like, now what everyone I know has been waiting for, and Quentin Tarantino is referring to the, his movie, Yeah. in yeah. that, well, I know everyone's been waiting for the gore, but here it comes, and like the murders and stuff, right? He's like, here it comes. It's it's gonna happen. It's just to build that suspense even more, because throughout the whole movie, he built the, the, the use of music, like, he uses music from the 60s, and then in moments that he needs to, he uses the standard kind of suspenseful music and stuff. Like, when he's going to see George at the ranch... Yeah. Like, you're on edge because of the music, and, like, he has little hints, like, the breeze in the background. Like, when he opens the door, you hear the breeze. Oh, I'm like, I don't know... Well, the first time watching, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen here. Yeah, exactly. I had no you idea. You assume he's dead. Like, I, that's I, what they're setting up. I assume up. he was dead, yeah. and I was fully buying into that. Yeah. And then it just... The only thing that happened is it turns out that... Uh, Cliff had the balls, the nerve to visit an old friend, and the hippies got super pissed and off about that. they got super mad. They're like, how dare you? How dare you? How dare, how dare you, you interrupt visit your old nap. friend? You interrupted nap time. You're like... <laughs> but that, like, again, that's a setup for the final scene in that you go in and you're expecting him to be dead and this horrible thing, and it turns out, no, it's like they said, he's napping. Yeah. Because, you know, they are taking advantage of him, but yeah. it's not like what you're expecting. No, you're like, Cliff is it, suspicious. It you know, mirrors like, the ending. Yeah, it does. Right? That is, that is a, it's a perfect parallel. It really yeah. is. You, you expect one thing, you get another thing, but that thing you weren't expecting turns out to be very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly. Like, you don't want the guy to be dead. No. But you're like, that, that, this is, this, like I said, this is a movie that is really transformative after the first time you watch it. It's yeah. very different. Uh, you can watch it for different reasons, but once you know how it goes, then... I mean, a lot of movies are like that. Once a you lot know how it ends. Yeah. But this one especially. This one specifically. Well, I mean, he didn't even share the ending with with anybody. Like, the only people who knew the ending were Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Were the only ones that read the script and knew the whole ending. He didn't have the ending. When he presented his script, he left out the ending on purpose. Everyone else got to executives stuff? and stuff. They had no idea. They yeah. didn't know. It wasn't even fake endings. It just ended and he was and like, like, yeah, and there's an ending get. that you're not yeah, you're not going to know it. Like, he, he, the only ones that did were them and he only had one script. They had to come to Quentin Tarantino's house to read it when they were like auditioning, even though you know those actors don't audition. They read and see if they want to do it. Yeah. They had to come to his house, sit on his deck, read the script in front of him. They couldn't take it home. They couldn't take it anywhere because it and had be the like, real I'm ending. I'm in or I'm out or whatever. Yeah. 
Did he do that with everyone? No, he did it with those three. And everyone else did not get the ending. They didn't know the ending until they were filming it. You know what? I think probably part of that, a big reason of that, I mean, I don't know if it's related or not, but you probably know that the Kill Bill script got leaked. Yeah. Well, and same with the Hateful Eight. That too. Scott's, yeah. So he, he wanted to avoid that. Especially, like, this movie would have been ruined if you knew the ending was different. The whole point of this movie More than any is of the that guttural feeling. Yeah. yeah. You have to go in not, like, expecting one thing and getting another. That's half this movie. Oh, yeah. So... When we went to see it the first time, protective. at the end, I was literally, you know, like, I was, it's literally on the edge of my seat. You yeah, know, like, you like, are. And I, you're I, cheering for a man to smash a woman's face in on the on a phone. Satisfying. Which, which is, yeah, it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah. Because of how you've been led to believe what's going to happen throughout the whole movie. These evil people are going to commit well, these evil exactly. acts. And, he, and Cliff the stops The good guys them. and the bad guys, flawed good guys, but it's still, there's a clear segmentation yeah. of how you want this movie to go. And it goes that way. Yeah. Like, you can't you can't get around talking about this movie without talking about the end. Yeah, exactly. Can and I mean, I mean, Rick Dalton becomes the hero that he's played in the movies, quite literally. He pulls yeah. out a flamethrower and torches the bad guy. <laughs> Maybe my favorite use of the Chekhov's gun principle of all time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's another thing. Like, like Cliff's badassery, that is something they actually do a very good job of setting up throughout the movie, is, is Rick's proficiency with the, uh, the flamethrower. Yeah. That yeah. he, which might be the he best method, method acting of dragon. all time. Yeah. <laughs> like, my favorite method acting of all time is learning to use a flamethrower. Yep. <laughs> that's just badass. But it goes to show part of his character how seriously he takes acting. Why it's such a big thing. Because he could just go, okay, well, I made my money. I made my TV show. I made a few movies. It is, it is I'm just going to chill out. But he doesn't. For him, it's his whole identity. Yeah, it's, He's not a great actor, that's but why it's he's struggling. important for him, for his, uh, his self-worth, to be good at it. Yeah, that's right. Well, he's so self-centered. He is a self-centered character. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's all about him. He's a him. narcissistic guy. Yeah. There's no, I mean... His whole house is I, full of his posters and stuff. So sure it takes, though. I think that just so- says something about the personality. Like, yeah. cause in the same thing as the Tate, she also has her memorabilia up on the walls. Right. I don't know if you noticed that too. Also, it seems like a weird endeavor to go to a movie of and watch yourself. Right. Yeah. Like, like we're actually seeing just right now. But so I think there is a bit of an egotism that goes into it anyway. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just the nature of doing that work. I think, I think you need it almost to be like, like you said, coming like you, you're like, Hey, you're Brad fucking Pitt. You need a little bit of that. About That's true. yourself, yeah. To do it well, like we've talked about this, but the the idea that uh, for the most part, most major movie stars basically just play themselves. Yeah, there uh, there isn't any. Brad Pitt doesn't do anything in this movie where he's like, ah, or, well, or you know, like heart wrenching on the ground, no. writhing around, or extended monologues, and yet he won the uh, the Academy Award for this movie, and you probably think it's I, I think it's deserved. I think it's well deserved. Uh, early thoughts were that Tom Cruise was going to be playing that role. Did you know that? He was going to be the stuntman. Well, it does work in that Tom Cruise is his own stuntman. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> I... I not, think he has that bravado, too. He totally does. How A dude who's like 5'5", five five or however tall he is, has an incredible presence. Yeah. Which says something... I mean, this is another different episode, but like that's, to me, we got to do a Tom Cruise appreciation show one time. <laughs> right, right. One thing I don't think we've uh, we've really touched on much is the quality. I mean, Tarantino is famous for his dialogue. That's how he made his name in the business. Is 
how sharp and distinct and unique it was. But what what about the dialogue in this movie really stands out to you? Well, to me, what really stands out again is that relationship between Rick Dalton and Cliff. Like my favorite scene in the movie is when they're just talking, watching the episode of FBI. Yeah, like their dialogue is perfect there, showing that relationship between the two. Yeah, there's it's a very, couple of buddies. It's very authentic and real. Yeah, that's that's exactly very authentic and real. That's how I'd put it. Perfect. It's not designed to move the plot along. I mean, occasionally it does. There's things, obviously, that do. You have to. Yeah. But it's designed to really be to show you the characters, their relationships with each yeah, other. Yeah, the strength of that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned it before, but they kind of have a great friendship. It's something we haven't talked about a lot. But it is a kind of an undercurrent to this movie is that these two guys are kind of have this perfect friendship. They kind of accept each other's flaws. They support each other. They're not good people. Right. <laughs> you know, like, they're not the best people. You know, like, Rick's an alcoholic and Cliff... But they're great friends to each other. But they're great friends. Yeah. Like, it's kind of, you know, like, yeah. it's this this great friendship. And that really shows through in the authenticity of the dialogue. Yeah. They've known each other for a long time. When, uh, they're, when they're in Italy and they're having that conversation, they kind of handle it as professionally as they can, but they both know what it's all about. There's all this subtext. Yeah. Like, they're like, at the end... We are going to go our separate ways. And that is kind of, it's kind of funny how the movie ends. You're kind of left with a cliffhanger with in terms of their personal relationship. You don't know how it's, they might still hang out. Well, I think. You murder people together, that brings people together. I think that's a major theme is that when they're talking in Italy about, they're, they're kind of awkward because they're talking about their professional relationship. Yeah. And because he has no need for a personal handyman, he's got a wife now, he's going to move to a condo. He doesn't really need him. He can't. Hide, he can't pay for him to be hanging around anymore. It's an awkward conversation because he can't pay him, but they're best friends. So he's, yeah, he's they've thinking, blurred that line. He's th- yeah. He's thinking like, well, I can't pay to have you around anymore. But and it really shows at the end of the movie. Like, yeah, they go through murder together. But even without that, I think like it shows when he wants to go to the hospital with him. Right? He's not just a paid guy. He's his best friend. Yeah. He wants to go to the hospital, and he's like, no, no, no. You stay home. Come tomorrow and bring take, me bagels. Take care of your wife, who also almost got murdered. Take care of my dog, who yeah. also, you know, is... And the point of that isn't like, oh, I'm never going to see you again. It's like, you're my best friend. I'll see you again. Yeah. Like, don't I, worry about it. Yeah. And, and it's it's left with that, because you think it's going to end, but it's not. He's getting, you know, like... Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen to Rick now that... He's gotten in with Sharon Tate now that he, you know, like he's might build a relationship with Roman Polanski, his next door neighbor. Maybe his career takes off from here. And that's the other thing about this movie is the untold story, which happens after, which yeah, that's a, a whole different who knows what the play in the what if game. But what I really struck me about this movie, both the first time I saw it and on subsequent viewings is how lean the dialogue is. Yeah, there, there's a paucity to it. There's no wasted words. Like you take a movie like uh, like Pulp Fiction, it's very flowery and elaborate. Uh, as much as I love that film, and as much as at the time people were blown away about how creative and original that kind of dialogue is, it takes real smart fucking people to talk that way in real life. Sam Jackson might be quoting Ezekiel because that was ingrained in his character, but that's not something that is ex- on an experiential level really happens much people talk a lot more like what happens in this movie yeah precisely and, and again that goes back to the rewatching ability for me like pulp fiction is great but it's a lot more to take in because of that because of the yeah. dialogue i find that like you said the dialogue on this is on point it's easy 
It's not wasted. It's how people talk. It's how people really it talk. Feels it's very, a very lived in and authentic and comfortable. Real. Like, uh, I, I just love it. Uh, I think part of that is having the great actors as well, right? Delivering these lines. They just feel comfortable together. Yeah. Like uh, Pacino, not a wasted word. Not at all. Like, I in think fact, he's, he's one of the undersung guys well, in this movie. The original cut was 28 minutes of that conversation without the movie cutaways. And I bet so, it's all interesting. I bet the whole thing is fascinating. For sure. Like, you watch that, you, you, I'm sure you'd watch it. It's just you can't put 28 minutes of a conversation that doesn't move the story along in yeah, a movie. That's, that's like some shitty Andy Warhol art film. <laughs> right. Like, no one wants to see that. <laughs> Tarantino's, at his core, I think, in all his movies, he wants to make movies that people want to see the way yeah. he wants to see movies yeah and that and a big part of that is having great dialogue even okay it's not entirely related but there is a narrator but it's incredibly sparse your boy kurt russell yeah he only talks a couple times that's like three times i think yeah yeah uh you think that's intentional or no yeah i think so it, it's thrown in there when it's necessary right it's at the beginning when it's setting up the, the movie that the fact that he doesn't drive yeah because he's got too many duis That's right. when it would take too long to show and explain something yeah they throw that in there and, like or the the progression the six months thing right the italian the time of the night. Yeah, yeah to move it along to move the movie along yeah because that doesn't add anything to the story no it just movies the movie along and and part of that is that he doesn't have that in the natural dialogue. Like, they're not sitting in Italy going, well, it's six months later because it's not natural. Yeah. So Quinn Turner here doesn't want to throw that in and be unnatural. So he's like, I'll do the narrator say it because that's an unnatural thing, but it progresses the story. Yeah. The other thing I really appreciated, like I said, there wasn't a lot of words that were, were missteps, but we kind of, in a lot of other Tarantino films, are given a real sense of the time and place by the, by the diction by by the dialogue by the words they use whether it's it's pulp fiction is an obvious example but the hateful eight is actually another one yeah it, it and it kind of cements that movie in time now this is a movie that is cemented in time by its time period yeah but not necessarily by its language no i don't think by the dialogue it is i mean definitely by the visual yeah and by the feeling he's trying to do that but yes. i think the dialogue and i keep going back to it but that's what makes it so watchable yeah. Because you're not watching a time period piece It's not per a time se. It is a time it's machine, a, but not yeah. in that respect. Mm -hmm. It's kind of no perfect. And the themes that he's dealing with, like, you know, Rick Dalton's existential crisis and whether or not he's a failure or whatever, that's, that's very relatable and very general. Well, you could transport these characters into modern times and it would be yes. no transition. The story really. is the same. The story is the exact same. The yeah. story is the same. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it works. Yeah. It just... It just happens to be occurring in 1969 yeah. with uh, the context of the Tate murders, right? Yeah. Like of the, the Helter Skelter shit, right? Like it's, it's, it's weird because it's the most stripped down and basic in terms of the dialogue of any Tarantino film I've watched, the least ornate, but and yet somehow very satisfying. It's not poetry, but at the same time, it's, it's authentic and real. Yeah, I think that comes down with his being experienced. The more experience he has, he realizes what it takes in the movie to move it along it isn't as much as he thinks it is yeah and it doesn't have to be as clever as he thought it once was well unless that's the yes. intent of the movie like kill bill kind of is a little bit over on purpose yeah but if you were to watch Re reservoir dogs now mm -hmm. like the monologue about madonna mm -hmm. who speaks like that yeah exactly. i don't even fucking speak like that. no <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i have a lot to say about madonna <laughs> 
That's a different episode. <laughs> or not. <laughs> no, no. That would just be me, half an hour of me and you're like, Colin, no. <laughs> Why did we get together today? This is stupid. Also, again, this is a minor thing, but we also didn't talk about the costuming. Right. Uh, okay. I feel like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's looks are specific. They're based on somebody, probably. Maybe. That, that's possible. I mean, you know, Tarantino, he kind of does that sort of thing. Um, what I like about it is it kind of goes with the era. Everything's very bright. If yeah. you notice, they don't wear white shirts. They wear yellow. They wear no, red. It's very yellow very and Very bright and vibrant. And even, even like they wear leather jackets. They're a bright, vibrant tan color. They're not just a dull black. Or when he's rocking the Canadian tuxedo, it's white jeans, white jacket. That's right, yeah. Like, it's... Which is, is era correct. Like, people wore yeah. that stuff more back then, right? The characters didn't have to, but, I, I mean, visually, even the cars that they're driving around, they're not dull colors they're no they're bright blues they're bright red even his shit box carmen Ghia is like this vibrant pale blue. blue this yeah. pale blue like uh the color palette and this is actually the one thing that hasn't come up yet that i really wanted to talk about is very specific for this movie to give it a lot of energy yeah well and the other thing is it's a very light movie when you yes. think of tarantino movies they're not generally light no bright colors like no. this one's very bright vibrant i mean with all the neon lights and stuff he does that on purpose to sum it up for me, this is weirdly, I don't think I've had a chance to say this yet, the least quote-unquote Tarantino movie he's ever made. Wouldn't you think? That's a funny way to put that. Yeah, is, I mean, though. I guess so. It is, though. Both, both in the aesthetic, both in uh, what we talked about in terms of the dialogue. Yeah, the least uh, violence. I mean, even though the violence, ending is super violent. But... Even though the ending is super violent, it is productive violence, we will say. Right. You know? Yeah, not a lot of gratuitous, which he's known for. Yeah, which is what the, the he alludes to when he says, now what you've been waiting for. The gratuitous violence. Yeah, yeah. You slaves to the machine. You just want people slaughtered. Mm, Tarantino people slaughter fans want it, yeah. Right? Like, every, every opportunity there is to use lighter colors, it seems, is taken. Yep. Part of that, I wonder how much of that is meant to capture the times and how much of it is just to give the film energy. And I kind of feel like it's both. It's definitely both. It puts you in that time because the 60s obviously are known for the bright colors mm. and stuff. But he also wants to put in that time period with the energy and the brightness. It's not a dark movie. No. Like these, these are characters that are you're supposed to like yeah. for the most part, right? It's. I come back to it again. It is probably the most satisfying movie he's ever made. Yeah. The Kill Bill movies are very satisfying too. Yeah. In, but, in uh, a different, very different way though. Yeah. Not relatable characters. Oh no! Like they're you don't, super you don't, ninjas and You don't look at them as real squad. people, whereas these yeah. guys, you feel for these people because you feel like they're real people. Yeah, it's it, it. It is the closest, weirdly, in a film that's about memory and perception and what it means to make a movie. That this is quote unquote the realest movie he might have maybe ever made. Well, yeah. It, even though it botched history, it's a funny thing. Well, not it's botched, true. but yeah. subverted. Yeah. You know, like real life events. It's the realest movie he ever made. Miss tells a real life story. Right. <laughs> Philosophically, that's just funny to think about. That is kind of funny, yeah. So, what are your final thoughts? Would you say on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? My final thought on that is uh, it's my favorite Tarantino movie, and I love Tarantino. So, personally, it speaks volumes. If you knew me, yeah, you don't. So, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's the truth. Yes, yeah. I love watching this movie the most. So, I don't know. That's about all I have for this movie. This one will age like fine wine. I agree. Is I my totally is my uh, my final yeah. thought. I think this one will actually age, even maybe even better than Pulp Fiction will. Yeah. Which is saying something because that movie is very much feels like it's locked 
in a in a box, and it and yeah. it feels like 1994. But this movie is already a period piece. Yeah. So I I think it only it's kind of like a time capsule, and we're gonna look back on it and feel the same way. I think in in 10, 20, 30 years. I definitely agree, and it'll still be just as fun to watch. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at fears.n.banter.mc. Uh, Hit us up in the comments for anything else you want us to talk about or any requests and uh, or throw shade. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever you <laughs> Bring want. Bring it do. on. <laughs> so, party on, Colin. Party on, Mike. So when you Nailed watch, it. not watch Cooper, the movie, we're not doing this eighty fucking times. Exactly. We're done.